0: Oh. Over to you, Mark. Thank you very much, Pete. Hello, everyone. Uh, as Pete said, I'm here to talk with you about uh, markets and market planning, a little bit of business planning. Uh, I've, I've got uh, basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk you through some of the ideas around what is a market, uh, why are markets good to imagine, why they're difficult when you have a new business to imagine what the market is. So, the first part of the talk is going to be more kind of thoughtful, conceptual, a little bit provocative, I hope. I'm going to show you a clip about 12 minutes of a clip from a talk that John Warnock gave here a few years ago. He's the founder of Adobe. Some of you know Adobe uh, Acrobat and other products of Adobe. And it's a talk about uh, product development. And I'm going to ask you to listen to that with a sensibility that really captures much of the point of the day. To think about how Warnock tells us how he imagines products, how they place them and make them work. A little bit about networks. Uh, Then, later in the talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about a USP. Some people call that a unique selling point, a unique selling proposition. Again, very familiar, but concrete and crucial ideas about how to know uh, and and become aware of potential customers for the service or product or offering that you have. And uh, I have about 40 minutes to do this in, so we'll just proceed along. I can talk very quickly, so I'll try to slow down. Uh, And I'm also happy to entertain questions later in the day. I know that the morning is quite full, so I'm happy to have questions at lunch or or whenever. Uh, As uh, Pete said, the the issue here is sort of thinking about um, markets and and business planning. There are a lot of ways to do that. I'm going to kind of give you a middle ground that is not at the height of the kind of rational models of business planning. And as I said, that starts out saying, you know, the interesting markets for entrepreneurs, for people with new businesses, with startups, the interesting markets are, are hard to imagine. They don't exist yet. And that's the kind of gist of this. I'm going to just talk with you very briefly about strategy and give you a kind of a quick strategy primer, then go into this piece about market planning, talk a little bit about Adobe, as I said, show you this clip on Adobe, and then give you some other examples a firm called San Francisco Science, which is a medical devices provider, and then wrap up with the material on USP on the sort of really nuts and bolts of thinking through the, the unique selling point of your, of your enterprise. Uh, okay, so the, um, the, the strategy primer, uh, again, I'm going to just move through this quickly. S- Strategies, we know it's firm strategy, entrepreneurial strategy, startup strategy, really comprises three core questions. This is gonna be review for many of you. The questions are really, you know, how do you outperform rivals? How do you do better or more than others in that same space? And that's sort of a basic question. We talk a lot about differentiation. You probably heard words like differentiation, but that core question is how do we outperform rivals? or others in that space. The second kind of broad question says, and how do we do that? Is it about competencies we have inside of ourselves? Is it about where we position ourselves in a market? What kind of product we're in? And the flavor of this morning really is picking up on that second point, the kind of what sort of marketer and how are we thinking about our customers? What kind of an offering are we making? The third question, and this is the question that's I think put strategy as a field into a lot of turmoil lately, is how do we sustain that over time? How do we do what we did today, tomorrow, next week, next month? And if you reflect for a minute on that, the problem there or the challenge of sustaining whatever it is that lets you or allows you to outperform your rivals, the challenge is that ecology or that ecosystem changes. New technologies come along, new competitors come along, regulatory arrangements shift, right? So there's a set of core factors which in the jargon are called pestle. Some of you may have run into that. It's a acronym for political, economic, sociocultural, environmental, legal, regulatory, and so forth. The the context changes. So that's, again, if you sit in a kind of a a strategy primer course, you're going to hear these three questions. How do you outperform rivals? What accounts for that? And how do you sustain whatever it is you're doing that's successful over time? What that sits in, and I I mention this because it's important, I think, for each of you and the enterprises you're thinking about, What sustains that is a core notion that says you can have a brilliant product, an incredibly strong firm, but if you're not engaged with the context, the environment, the strategic context around you, you typically, the firm typically won't do well, right? So there's this strong coupling between the sort of context you're in, what you do and what you offer as a firm. So that's the kind of, I'm I'm sort of saying that's the 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 primer questions to keep in mind. There's also another notion that I want to mention again, just to make sure you're familiar with, and that is the idea of a value chain. This is a notion that you've run into, you know, it's common sense, but it's useful, I think, to specify it. It basically says, when you think about your offering, consider how that value is created over time. In other words, how you go from whatever the raw inputs are, whether they're talent or raw materials, or a set of skills, or a set of internal routines and algorithms, whatever the raw materials are, what's the process by which those raw materials acquire value and ultimately acquire some value in a market, whether it's an intermediate market for other Purveyors, and intermediaries, or a final goods and services market for customers, and the value chain idea is interesting because a lot of what has, a lot of what I'm going to say, and a lot of the insights about sort of market building, flow from understanding that idea of a value chain. If you look at this right away, you're going to say, "Huh, that's a very static conception," and you're right. Part of what I think is interesting today in the field of strategy and innovation is loosening that assumption that a value chain is not just a linear incremental unit, right? It's actually, if you think about it, uh, things like Ryanair, a lot of interesting firms have made their mark, have become successful by really rethinking the nature of the relationships that sit under the value chain. And later today, one of the colleagues is going to talk to you about networks more directly, and you'll hear that in what I'm saying. But this value chain idea simply says that each of those steps, for our kind of initial purposes, this forces you, it disciplines you to say at each of those steps, what kind of activities are going on that create value, who's involved in that, and how is that organized? And so the point here, the value chain for each link, you know, it's a, the question is, how, how does this link add value? And this is, again, this is a very standard value chain. You know, If you're doing services, other kinds of offerings, you would adapt that. Uh, but each link, how does it add value? And then the overall, how does that overall value chain create some kind of distinctive competence or something, I'm going to be caught here, something that lets you... Uh, something that lets you become, uh, uh, to perf- outperform your rivals, right? So from my perspective, and I'm going to try to persuade you today, that a value chain is a starting point. If you reflect on this also for a minute, you get the interesting insight that says, ah, whoever's already in the market, whether they're a different technology than you, whether they think about what the process or offering you're making, uh, whether they think about that differently, there's some incumbent value chain and then entrepreneurial activity, startups become really saying, how are we going to vary or amend or rethink that incumbent value chain? As you'll see in the Adobe talk, the, the John Warnock comments, one of the challenges for a startup, especially one that is doing something truly innovative, uh, one, of the, the, one of the challenges is, where do we start? How do we know how to assemble that value chain? So my kind of initial argument to you is you always want to discipline yourself to think through, what's the incumbent Doing what's the incumbent market? What needs is that incumbent market serving, and how are they meeting those needs? Right, and that's kind of captured in a value chain idea. And and as I said, well, that will recur as we go on. So the the gist of this, and the kind of transition point I want to make to get to the topic today says there's a lot of ferment right now. If you read the paper, if you pay attention to what's happening here in the Thames Valley, if you look a little more globally, many of the conventional ideas about what makes successful entrepreneurial startups successful is changing, particularly as we shift to new forms of new kinds of science, as we do more and more nanotech, as there's more interesting clean tech, uh, as we're moving away from sort of the Silicon Valley model, many of the truths or many of what some people would call the conceits of that model of success are being rethought. And so we have, and this is the kind of the core, we're really shifting from this idea of competitive advantage to value creation. And that term value creation, I think, is gonna recur today. Again, it's a jargon term, but that shift really connotes a a difference of saying entrepreneurial startups are successful not because they do one thing well, but because they really understand how to create value for a variety of customers and intermediaries along a value chain, right? So the value creation story becomes central. As I said, PESEL, the summary for those macroeconomic, political, technological shifts, those are reconfiguring industry boundaries. And as you know, an interesting place to be is at the intersection of industries that are shedding their historical form and moving on. Some of you know the iPod. Everybody know an iPod? You know, what was, anybody, what, what was important about the iPod? What, what made Apple... What, what's given Apple the kind of primacy that it has with the iPod? Anybody? What's what's the iTunes. it's iTunes and why is iTunes important? At least in the in the in the way that I'm talking at least. Why is iTunes important? It's an a that. Right. Okay. So you know, iTunes basically it's not the pretty uh, as lovely as the kind of elegant design is. A, an iPod is really what it's really a kind of a Sony Walkman on steroids, right? It's really a very familiar. No, it's a very familiar kind of way that's been crafted in new ways some people would say you know many people would trace the lineage from the Sony Walkman to Napster MP3 to the iPod And, and again the argument that you're making I think is the one I want to persuade you of today that the iPod is distinctive because of iTunes what's the iTunes well it's Apple with a lot of clout, legal activity IP management market pressure sorting out access to many kinds of content Importantly, is you know, making that legal and making it easily accessible. And so the the kind of imagery that I want you to to pay attention here is the iPod is not really an invention. It's not even necessarily an innovation. The core, the value creation of the iPod is sort of imagining and implementing uh, iTunes. Uh, Do you have a question or is your hand just... Moving in the air, just moving in the air, okay. Just checking, sorry. I just, I'm like a raptor, I see movement in the room and I sort of focus in, so. Okay, and so, okay, so if we think that value creation is sort of core, then the issue is, you know, what is that, well, then I'd say we really talk about managing an exploit-explore ratio. And again, you'll hear more about that today. That simply says, really, firms that are able to do that sustainable effectiveness over time exploit current competencies and markets and products, but they also explore and building in some ratio of exploit to explore is really important. And the how of that is where I'm gonna go now for a few minutes, the how of that is really paying attention to roles and relationships. So the claim I'm gonna make with you this morning is that strategy for an entrepreneurial firm, kind of marketing strategy, understanding a market is not about taking a position Rather, it's really about understanding a whole ecosystem and building and managing relationships and roles within that ecosystem. And that sounds kind of jargony, I know. But if you think about the iPod, that's literally what Apple did. It it assembled a set of players. It, in some sense, embodied in iTunes an enormous amount of expertise, work, talent. And literally, that is the outcome of managing a set of relations. You'll hear a very similar story from John Warnock in a few minutes, about uh, his early, the Postscript, which was the early product of Adobe Photoshop and Illustrator. Okay, so that's the, that's the strategy primer again. All I want you to think about there is keep in mind this idea of a value chain. Uh, think about those questions. What do you do to outperform rivals and how do you sustain that over time? In this slide, it's a summary of a colleague here at Oxford, a guy named Rafael Ramirez who you know, gives us this core insight, he says, and it's very similar to what I'm asking you to reflect on. He says, so today, strategy is not about being in the right place, in the right part of the value chain, in the right part of the market. Why? Because all that's in flux. And that's doubly true, I think, in entrepreneurial startups and even more true where we're looking at emerging industries and truly novel and innovative products. Many of you are, are trying to commercialize. Um, he says Instead, he says, successful companies reinvent value. And this is the claim. He says the focus of the analysis is not the company or even the industry. All of the comfortable kind of assumptions about get the firm right or even get the industry right, Rafael says, are melting away. And instead, it's about getting the value-creating system right. And that sounds good. What's the problem? Well, the problem is the value-creating system doesn't exist. You as an entrepreneur have to imagine that. And this is the link to some of the material this afternoon on networks. You literally have to imagine that value creating system as Apple did. And you'll see again very concretely in Warnock's talk that ability to see beyond sort of incumbent and familiar settings. Uh, And Warnock is gonna tell us about that by really talking about networks directly. So then the point is this last one I just made, the, the, the point of strategy here then is really reconfiguration of market, I'm sorry, reconfiguration of roles and relationships. OK, let me uh, give you the, the Warnock videos. I, said, everyone, I think everyone knows Adobe Acrobat or Adobe uh, uh, the firm. They've had a series of successful products. They've, their activities have really redescribed a number of industries connected to publishing, uh, magazines, photography, other areas. Uh, they think of themselves, I think, importantly as a provider of technology and standards. It's kind of, historically, it's a very geeky organization. Uh, uh, Warnock himself and his partner, Jeske, were uh, PhDs in computer science, and again, you'll hear some of that in the comments. What I want you to think about here, I just want you to kind of think about how he tells us they imagined and built markets for PostScript, for Photoshop, and for Adobe Illustrator, right? Three old products, probably older than many of you in the room, but three products that really provided the bedrock for Adobe's success. Okay, so what I'd like to do now is I'd like to kind of draw a couple of lessons from uh, Warnock. As you know, just listening to him, he's giving us a number of insights about his own location in the kind of ecosystem at Silicon Valley. Hmm. He's also giving us an idea that's very common, very powerful idea about what some people call disruptive innovation, that initially activities and... um, and you know, Warnock has also given us a really useful idea. Oh, thank you, that's great. Warnock has given us a really useful idea about disruptive innovation, which is a you know really quick idea here, and it's relevant to the day. He's asked us to say, you know, interesting markets don't exist. And in fact, you know, if you listen to his commentary, it's a very standard entrepreneur's vision. There was a concrete problem. My wife had a problem inking. Uh, Logos, I solved it, I came up with a solution, and then we began to be successful. And how is that? Well, the world changed around us. And his story about Steve Jobs and Apple and the uh, the amount of uh, the cost of RAM, his uh, story about the Photoshop and the increase in the memory capacity. You know, Each of those are stories about saying, I actually didn't know when that was going to happen exactly, but I was in a community. I was in a set of conversations. I was part of an ongoing conversation. I knew that was going to happen eventually. And his account really reminds us of the importance of thinking about markets that don't exist and then beginning to imagine how you materialize those markets. The other thing he says, he doesn't say this as clearly in the comments. Some of you will know this. He is a network thinker. He literally looked for nodes he, saw the world as, he sees the world as kind of a complex network pattern and he looks for core nodes. So with Postscript, as you may know, they didn't try to sell at retail. They started with the Apple LaserWriter, but then they licensed Postscript to 13 different printer manufacturers. So Adobe has always gone for core nodes in a kind of a distributed network of activity and put energy there. Same thing is true with Adobe Acrobat. You may know when it was introduced, Acrobat was released to agencies like the US uh, IRS, the tax service in the United States. So he, you know, Adobe isn't good at letting other actors push their products out for them by making them useful and convenient for other people to use. Okay, so I want to think about the lessons of Warnock in terms of that disruptive innovation, the kind of network sensibility, and that core question, the, the interesting markets, the, the, the kind of productive markets, if you will, are often hard to imagine they don't exist. We have, to, we have to think about them. I'd like you to connect that back to the point I made a few minutes ago. When we think about a value-creating system, you, the entrepreneur, are the person that has to imagine what set of relationships to build, who to bring together to actually create that value, right? to make that possible. Uh, I'm just going to flip on. This is, again, some of you will know this already. It's a very familiar story. Henry Ford, says he, he, uh, he eponymously said two things famously, the guy who created auto, mass production of automobiles. On one hand, he said, you can have any color car you want as long as it's black. Everyone knows that, right? That's the kind of standard story. And the second story is germane to this point today. He said, the problem is, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? Which embodies the idea that existing Consumers, existing markets, are largely oriented around existing attributes, existing product attributes, existing services. And when we think about the Adobe story in contrast, you know, Adobe was saying we're going to create something that nobody wants at this point, but we're actually going to create something that they can use and become useful for them and shift their wants. And the tension here, which you know, is the tension between the aphorism stay close to your customers... Which is a very good insight if you're trying to do incremental innovation, if you're trying to build out on an existing market, stay very close to your customers. That's very bad advice if you're trying to find something at the interstice of new technologies or of emerging industries. And it's that tension I'd like you to, to reflect on, right? He so says, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have set a faster horse. This goes, this is, you know, this is part and parcel of my encouragement to you to say, and this is where we're going to go in just a minute, What's the, what is the offering you're making? Is it an incremental? Is it building on something that already exists? Or is it trying to reshape an entire way of consuming, or a way of producing, or a way of acting? And that, that tension, what I'm calling exploit-explore, is very useful to think about. OK, I'm going to move through some slides fairly quickly here, and then wrap up with sort of the concrete uh, USP argument. Some of you also know William Gibson, the science fiction writer. Again, a famous quote often used, I think, timely for us. Gibson says, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And I'd like to give that to you as a challenge. When you think about marketing your offerings, when you think about building this you're doing, like adobe the future is already here like steve jobs the future is already here it's unevenly distributed in other words that information is distributed and disaggregated it's located in different places and she or he that firm that pulls them that information together that literally assembles the future is powerful this is the argument about the ipod that the colleague out here made it's you know i i, I want to again, suggest to you, and this is the language I would use, is that of a system builder. If you're interested in this, I have a TEDx talk. This is a small self-promo. I have a TEDx talk. You can Google me and hear about system building. But the argument here says, like Warnock, like Steve Jobs with iTunes, like a number of interesting initiatives, the ability to say, ah, the future is already here. It's just scattered. And my work is actually assembling that and connecting it and building the sinews through networks and again, the language I used earlier, managing roles and relationships to create and consolidate that value. So that's the, that's the kind of core pitch I'm making. I'm gonna just sniff now in my last couple of minutes to sort of a more concrete story. I'm gonna skip these slides. You're welcome, you have the slides. I'm happy to ever talk about them at the question time. This is sort of about San Francisco scientist, medical devices entrepreneur who basically positions himself in an existing industry space, medical devices, he is not connected, he doesn't have medical expertise, he doesn't have capital, but he wants to get into the medical device space. And of course, what he does is a traditional brokering story. He locates San Francisco science as a core broker among each of these other elements, right? So and you'll hear more about that today, later. Uh, I'm also just gonna move on the system builder slide uh, and, and really come to this kind of last bit. The kind of gist I'd like you to reflect on, so I've given you this kind of idea of markets have to be imagined and you as an entrepreneur have to really understand the value-creating constellation that's out there, but following Gibson's insight, it's distributed unevenly. It's not visible. It's not already packaged together. And you have to take on the work of being a system builder. You have to be the one that really envisions the possibilities. How do you do that? Okay, so the, the USP is a familiar, another piece of jargon, many of you know, comes out of marketing strategy. It basically says the discipline, the work you have in understanding what is the distinctive, compelling, value offering you make. The work of figuring that out is central to both marketing your firm or your offering and also uh, really uh, sustains a strategy, right? So USP, unique, that is distinctive. Uh, sets a, a clue, sets you apart from the competitors selling. It actually provides the compelling argument for your offering as opposed to others. And finally, it's a proposition. It has some of the kind of persuasive qualities that we know drive the adoption of innovations of various kinds. The the next couple of slides I'm going to talk through and then just wrap up with a kind of a concluding slide. This comes from a colleague of mine, a guy named Mohan Sani, who teaches at the Kellogg School at Northwestern. Um, He and his colleagues have done something very interesting. They've said, what are the ways firms can create value through innovation and through other kinds of activities? For our purposes, I think this helps us remember when we're trying to think about a USP, what makes our offering? How do we position our offering? What makes it distinctive? How do we really understand the kind of guts or the mechanics of a firm? Sonny, Sonny's people say there are four core dimensions. What you offer, right? how you make that offering, to whom you offer it, the customers or the market, and the presence, whether you're online, bricks and mortar, and so forth. And then within each of those kind of broad quadrants, there's a set of sub-dimensions. So there's 12 dimensions. Now, could there be 15 dimensions? Of course. Could there be seven? Yes. There's nothing magical here. But the discipline, I think, for us as entrepreneurs, as people thinking about trying to move kind of basic ideas, basic science into commercial spaces, is to say some, some of those dimensions, by thinking through those dimensions systematically, we can imagine ways to create distinctiveness value, uh, service positioning, and propositions, right? So it focuses, and this is important, it focuses away from the, the offering itself. And it focuses not only on the offering we make, but how we make it, to whom we make it, right? This is the core of really imagining a distinctive market. This next slide gets, takes each of these dimensions, defines them quickly, gives you some examples to kind of make them more uh, vivid or more visible to you. you know, Basically, it, it reminds us of the the core understanding offerings are new products. Platform is how you leverage capabilities. Value capture is something about the payment structure and reimbursements. Supply chain is understanding something about procurement. In other words, this is a checklist, if you will, <laughs> that you can use when you begin to formulate a USP to really have a much broader vision of the places that distinctive value can be created for your offering. Okay, uh, and so then we'll go through, again, the next couple of slides, I'm just gonna literally flash through. They're pretty commonsensical. I'm gonna bring us to the last set of slides and then close there. The, this is really the process, if you will, for defining a USP. So think about what you do, the biggest benefits you offer, and this is, again, where you engage with customers, both current customers and potential customers. What do you offer them, right? Write that down. Be very concrete. This is a very concrete kind of practical guide, a checklist. Write those down. Then say, okay, what's distinctive about that? And the distinctiveness here, what makes the value in your offering can come from the product itself. It can come from the offer you make, the proposition you make, and it can come from a guarantee. So this is taking a product a kind of a, a, a technique to hit a baseball. And the product then is a unique baseball swing that will instantly force you to hit like a pro, right? That's the focus on the product. The offer is you can learn this easily and it will be effective and help you improve yourself in just a very little bit of time. And the guarantee is if you don't hit like a pro baseball player, uh, you'll, we'll refund your money, right? So this is again asking you to imagine the sources of distinctive value and then Literally put those into words, right? Put those into words that can become the basis of a marketing Mm -hmm. vision and a marketing strategy. The third step in a USP is really paying attention to solving what some people call a pain point. What's bothering people? You know, Warnock said to us, my wife would come to me at midnight and say, I need to do a logo, you know, uh, John, Mm -hmm. fix, make, help do something in postscript so I can do a logo, right? That's that There's some, Problem, some pain point, something that organizes the initial production of value. Uh, familiar in the US case is Domino's Pizza, some of you will know this. They have had a very powerful uh, success with the claim Domino's, pizza delivered in 30 minutes or it's free. And the argument here is that speaks to people's want for quick food, kids are hungry, just got home from work. You know, that idea, it's delivered in 30 minutes or it's free. Involves a value proposition. It solves a problem for people. That's the core of a USP. Again, I know this sounds really hokey. It sounds kind of this is so simple, but again, what sits behind this is the discipline of using that 12-dimensional space and really saying what is the source of value that I can offer, and what are the kinds of uh, problems or challenges or difficulties that I can solve, right? And it's that interplay described in a very simple set of steps. Uh, Again, the last couple of steps then are be specific and offer some kind of proof and finally condense that into that clear sentence. And that's the you know pizza delivered in 30 minutes or it's free. Very clear, concise, powerful. Another example I'll use, and this is one that a lot of people have seen. Oh, sorry, step six is just, again, using that in your marketing materials. Another one that I think is also powerful, again, many people will know here is FedEx, again, a US primarily US, uh, but vision, the the FedEx story was when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. If you think back 10 or 15 years ago, the idea that you could literally, you know, before sort of sending PDFs around, the idea that you could get bulky packages somewhere the next day in the world was remarkable. And so FedEx kind of embodies this promise, understanding a particular client base, understanding a challenge or a difficulty for that client base, and then providing a solution. And if you're a savvy person, as you are, you're saying, well, right away, probably early on, FedEx didn't always make that. They probably didn't always get it there the next day, and that created all kinds of difficulties and disgruntlement. Again, that has the quality of what I talked about a few minutes ago as a disruptive innovation. In other words, the features of this new offering at initia- initially didn't meet the standards, but over time, that quality improves and becomes uh, value adding in a way. So just to kind of summarize, and this is the last slide, I think I'm out of time. So <laughs> just to summarize, you know, here's some 10 kind of simple steps to really think about your customers, to think about how you build a, a USP. I've suggested with the help of Henry Ford, I don't think you want to be close to your customers only, but you want to pay attention to who they are, who they could be, how they currently do things, when they buy, why they buy and then begin to think about a set of more qualitative experiences, what makes them feel good about buying, what they expect of you, the reputational issues that FedEx, I think, exemplifies. So that's, that's the story. I hope it's useful to you. My, my kind of parting comment would simply be, I started out asking you to think about markets that don't exist because I think those are the most interesting markets. They also discipline us to not take for granted that we're just going to incrementally build on a market. And I've suggested to you themes that you're going to hear the rest of the day about networks and about the ability to imagine a value constellation and then to implement that through kind of judicious and purposeful networks and the managing of roles and relationships.